This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. If God's will is already decreed, he already knows what he wants and he's going to get it anyway, then what sense does it make to ask him for things? Yeah, this is often known as the, the problem of petitionary prayer. Like, why, why ask God to do anything if he already knows what is best, he already wants what is best, he already has the power to do what is best? And there's a number of different ways of answering this question. Some people say, well, we should pray to God because it's mostly to affect us, not to impact God. And I think there is some truth to that. I would not ever deny that. But I think there's a very strong current throughout Scripture where we are invited, both God's people, the covenantal people of Israel in the Old Testament, and then people in the New Testament are invited or instructed to offer petitions to God in a way that gives the very strong impression that they might make actually make a difference with mm. regard to God's action. Now, how that makes sense hinges on what we say at a number of other levels. We, we don't want to say we pray to God to inform him because God knows everything already. We certainly don't want to say that we pray to God to give him more power, because he's already all-powerful. Nothing we would pray would, would give him more power. And we also don't want to say that we pray in a way that makes God want to bless us or do good things in the world that he doesn't already want to do. So, so then how do we answer the question? Uh, a lot of approaches to this that say, well, there is really an influence on God in prayer. They will say, well, one approach is a kind of free will approach that God can do more in the lives of creatures who submit their will to him or invite him into their life. And that works as far as it goes, but it doesn't seem to answer the question about petitionary prayer for others mm-hmm. or petitionary prayer in a kind of corporate sense. And the way I uh, typically approach this is I think that there's much more going on in the background of the way God acts in the world. And I think that the way God acts in the world is affected by something else in the background that many speak of as a cosmic conflict, where there's actually agencies beyond, supernatural agencies other than God, that are at work in the world, such that prayer actually makes a difference to what God does in the world because God is operating within a conflict in which there are some rules or some parameters in which God himself has committed or covenanted to act within. Now, there's there's a lot more to that backstory for that to make sense, uh, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, I want to come back to that, <clears throat> that idea of conflict. Um, but as you were speaking, it made me think of a more basic question, just methodology in scripture. There, there is no command to pray, right? Um, and, and at least in the way that Christians often think of the ritual of prayer. Yeah. Um, Jesus obviously assumes that people will pray. Uh, when you pray, pray like this. Um, but if we were to think of like, okay, starting in Genesis, and I, I had this question, what, what good does prayer do? Where am I going to see prayer-like things, you know, beginning in Genesis and walking forward, um, that I can start working out what the biblical authors thought about prayer? Yeah, you see, I think it's just bathed all through the narrative. Anytime somebody's talking to God, that can at least be couched in some sense in prayer. Mm-hmm. And that's happening very early in the Genesis story going forward, where people are making requests of God. So I don't know if this would be the earliest one, but I think of, you know, Abraham in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah and making the this, right, will not the judge of the earth do what is right. 
Mm. And so he's, he's asking him, you know, please, <laughs> for, for the sake of, you know, Lot right. and, and the other family members there. And you have this back and forth between God and Abraham. And, and, he, you know, and he's not just asking him, he's appealing to his own internal claim of justice, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not just a petition. It's if you really are the God of justice, you, you would do this, right? And, right. And, and God responds back, I won't destroy the city if there are 50 righteous in the city, right? And and down and down and down all the way uh, to 10, I, I think it is. If there's 10 mm-hmm. in the city, I still won't destroy it. Of course, uh, there's more than one way to read that narrative. Uh, but part of what's going on is I think God already knows that there, there, that there are not those right. in the city. And he's already he's already made this calculus because he is righteous. He wouldn't destroy the city if there was any grounds or any way to actually not bring about that judgment event. But what Abraham is asking him to do, he already wants to do if there was some ground to do it. And I think there is that kind of motif throughout scripture where the God of the God of the Bible is often said said to seek an intercessor, right? He's seeking someone to intercede. In one place he says, I sought for one to intercede and there was no one. Hmm. In other places there seems to be this implicit uh, seeking of an intercessor, like in the Exodus narrative, where he says to Moses, let me alone. But the very uh, statement to Moses elicits this back and forth in both Exodus 32 and Exodus 33, that uh, it, it's almost as if when God says, let me alone, he's, he's inviting dialogue at the same time, because <laughs> like, Moses can't me. do anything to stop him. <laughs> Moses can't do anything to stop him, right? right? right. Let me alone. Well, if he wants to be, God wants to be alone, who's going to stop him? Right. And so there's this back and forth of intercession that, that seems to actually make a difference. And it's not just in those those narratives, but in the in God's relationship to the covenant community, right? You have the the statement where God says about the covenant people, "If my people, you know, will humble themselves right. and seek my face and turn their, from their wicked ways, then I will hear them." Uh, and so there there seems to be some parameters, some rules involved. And I don't think it's as if God doesn't want to bless them, but something else is going on there. And the the request and also the rest of the posture and disposition towards God actually makes a difference. And this carries over in the New Testament. Well, you mentioned already kind of kind of implicitly, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, there's not a command, so to speak, but there is this this statement, right, to, to pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and other kinds of petitionary prayers within that prayer, which I don't think are just superfluous. And then Jesus himself prays that way in Gethsemane. Yeah. No, I think it's, so you're opening up all kinds of windows for us now. So let me throw something past you. So in uh, Exodus uh, two at the end, God hears their cries. He sees their suffering, and He yes. knows yes. whatever whatever it is that He knows at that point. Um, and then you can ask this question: Well, does God only hear the cries of of Israel? So we see that He responds after He hears the cries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does He only hear the resp- uh, the cries of Israel? Then you get to Exodus uh, twenty one twenty two, um, where the law and it says, and, and if the days to come, and if you oppress a foreigner, if you oppress a widow or an orphan, yeah. I will surely hear their cries, and my yes. anger will burn hot. I'll come kill all y'all and make your wives widows yeah. and your or your sons orphans. And then going back to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, where you're talking about in Genesis 19 or 18, where he's mm-hmm. pleading with God, he said, God already knows. And so I just want to point out, in case people missed what you did there, you, you said, well, God already kind of knew there, there was nobody righteous out there. And, then, and I can hear somebody going well, like, well, how do we know actually that God knew there was no righteous people in there? And then I think the narrative is very intent on pointing this out. It says... Yeah. Uh, all the men of Sodom, every man to the last man, was it like, and there's this sense of like, just the description of the crowd, it's actually a very egregious or an extended description that makes sure you know that every man who was in that village was at the door ready to do what they were ready to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think cements that point that you made that God kind of already knew. Uh, and I think the, the flip side of that is you see there's no cry 
um, coming out from Lot. There's no cry. Although God has gone down there through his messengers yeah. to see if the report that has come to him is altogether true, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even there you have this kind of something is coming up to him uh, and he's investigating. And then there's there's um, no plea for him to help. So he destroys versus in Exodus where you see he hears the cries, he hears the cries and yeah. he responds. Yeah. Is is it right to call it like I'm, I'm now, okay, if that's part of the matrix of prayer, is that, I, I don't know how to say this politely, that seems very informal compared to the way I think most Christians think about prayer um, and that we, you know, it has to have a dear God or our father, an intro has to, have, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, almost yeah, yeah, prayers yeah. almost have to be chiastic yeah. in some way or, yeah. um, so I wonder, um, how do we how do we delineate what is and what isn't prayer? And 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 in that sense, maybe we could delineate it and like what's effective and not. The, the prayers of a righteous man are are strong, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, what do you have any uh, any categories for delineating what is effective prayer and not? Because I've seen books and I've yeah 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 I've seen I've seen lots of stuff on effective prayers and how to pray correctly and do the pray pray like this, right? So, what's yeah what's the nuts so and bolts I, here? So I would think of I would think of prayer minimally as some kind a petitionary prayer I should say as some kind of request of God, and I think you don't necessarily have to have uh, formal elements for that to take place. You can ha- you can be praying at least in a New Testament sense. You know, pray without ceasing suggests that you're not always going through a particular kind of uh, a formal kind of prayer or even a particular posture. If mm. you're if you're in a kind of attitude of prayer, then it, it's kind of communication with God in a minimal sense. And a petitionary prayer would be making some kind of request toward God. The efficacy is, I think, going to be two-pronged, right? There's going to be a distinction between what we pray for and whether that comes about and whether our prayers make any difference at all. And those are mm. two different things. Um, we, in the New Testament, we're told, you know, uh, you, 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 you're you not asking for the right thing. You know, you, you ask, but you do not have because you pray wrongly. But elsewhere, we're told, if you if you ask anything according to my will, it will be, it will be given to you, Jesus, uh, the, the New Testament says. So I think there are prayers that can be answered or that are efficacious without them being answered the way that we pray for them to be answered. Hmm. And there's a number of factors, but one of them is just, we don't always know how to pray as we ought. We don't know whether what we're praying for is what God really wants to bring about. And even in Romans 8, 26 through 27, there's this this cryptic idea of the Holy Spirit, like translating our prayers because because we don't know what to say. But, But all of this, I think, makes uh, much more sense if you understand God as the, the personal God who's actually engaging in relationship with creatures in a way that that what we do and how we relate to God actually makes a difference. Like in those stories that you mentioned, you don't just have you know the abstract notion that God knows already. There's three that come down in the form of men. Uh, one of them is Yahweh, based on based on the way that the text depicts mm-hmm. him in that story in, in Genesis 18 and onward. Uh, but then they go right, and there's an actual kind of an investigation that is show, that it shows that God is taking this seriously. It's not as if there's some kind of a flippant notion that He's going to bring judgment. And same thing in Exodus and beyond. You have this repeated pattern of God. Uh, going to the trouble of making clear to his people and anyone else who happens to be watching that he really is being fair and just and going to every possible length to do what is good for all involved. And I don't, I don't think to your question about, you know, whether prayers are only Israel's prayers are heard. Are there others that this, this makes sense for? I think there's, there's a lot of evidence in the text that God is hearing the prayers of people outside of the elect covenant people of Israel. 
you have already the, the story of Hagar. Now I know she's 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 with Abraham, uh, mm-hmm. but she's not uh, ethically in Israel. Obviously, there aren't any at, at that point right. yet. And you know that you have the Malachi, the angel of the Lord, uh, that actually goes to her and and speaks with her, and she says, well, <laughs> "I've seen God." Right. So so God meets with her and speaks to her in this special way and makes provision for her, even though her lineage is outside of the lineage of that special covenant of Israel. And you have this happening repeatedly throughout the story with with you know people like Rahab and Ruth later on. And then you also have, I think, a, a very interesting juxtaposition between the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Nineveh, right? Hmm. In the story of Nineveh, you have God sending this prophet uh, to Nineveh, uh, and they repent, and they plead with God, right? They repent in dust and ashes, and they give this plea, which could be interpreted at least minimally as a petition toward God. And God responds, and he doesn't bring destruction on them, doesn't bring judgment because of their plea, because of their petition, because of their repentance. And I think it follows from that, that God is open to the requests of all peoples anywhere and actually wants to bring mercy rather than negative judgment, wants to bring blessing to all peoples everywhere throughout the story. Yeah, that that clears up a lot of conceptual categories, I think, for most people. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty of that then. When somebody in Nineveh repents to God, and their animals repented too, right? Their animals wore sackcloth. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. When they repent to God, um, I, I think a lot of people, well, quite honestly, when, when students or parishioners ask these kind of questions, I think they have in mind and probably I do as well. Like, is there a little switch in the back of God that we've just got to reach through this magic called prayer? And if we, as long as we toggle that switch, we get the thing, um, whether that's even just relief or mercy or, or gifts or something like that. And it doesn't sound, it sounds like you're playing along a line of maybe something like that, but probably not. So how do you, what's the mechanism, I guess, that you think is going on here? Yeah. Yeah. So the short answer is, I don't know what the mechanism is. I know it's not a mechanism that manipulates God. I know it doesn't act like magic or some kind of, you know, magic words or magic posture, and then God does what you ask for. There seems to be a number of factors, including God's will for what is best or preferable, given everything that he knows. And then uh, what what God is, I think, morally permitted to do within the lives of individual and within kind of the broader confines of what he's committed himself to working within the world. But I think maybe maybe one example that's helpful to tease out that that more is often going on that than meets the eye is that story in, in Mark nine, where you mm-hmm. have the the man who brings his uh, demon possessed son first to the disciples, and they couldn't cast him out, and then he brings him to Jesus, and he says, you know, if you can do anything, right, you know, cast this demon on my son, and Jesus is like, if you can, all <laughs> things are possible right. to him who be- him who believes, and then the man says the statement, which is one of my one of my favorite favorite uh, parts of scripture where he says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, right? right? And it's almost if he's saying, well, I believe, I'm not sure if I believe enough, right? but but I want to believe, right? So does that count? Do I believe enough? And Jesus doesn't say to him, you know, come back to me when you have more right. faith. Right. He, he actually casts out the man, the, the demon out of the man's son, right? And so even that small, what, what at least the man perceived to be small or maybe not even enough, or he wasn't even sure he believed fully, uh, was enough for Jesus to act. It's like it gives him the foothold 
to do what he already wants to do. And I don't understand the full mechanism. But there's more than just that because it continues, as you know, in, in, Mark, in Mark 9, where the disciples then go to Jesus afterwards, right? Because they're still thinking about, well, why couldn't we do it? Mm. And so they go to Jesus and say, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus gives this very strange statement, right? He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. And fasting. Now, yeah, yeah. Depending on the depending oh, on the yeah, textual, depending on the, gospel. Yeah, depending, yeah. depending on the yeah, depending on the manuscript, right? Yeah. So this kind comes out only by prayer, and some some manuscripts have and fasting as well. Either way, you have some kind of petition and some kind of orientation on, on the human parts that that is making some kind of difference. And that's mm. not the only place you have that, right? Just just a few chapters before that in Mark six, I think it is. You have Jesus in his hometown where it says he could do, do no miracle there except right. he, he, he healed a few people, right? But he couldn't do everything he wanted to do. And there it's connected to some kind of a lack of faith. So it seems that in the New Testament, at least, there's some, some connection between faith and prayer. It makes some difference. But we cannot reduce what God does to those factors because it seems like even if those factors are in place, it's not always going to guarantee, guarantee the outcome that one is praying for. And so yeah. I think we should recognize those are factors, but there's many other things God know, knows is going on. There's many other purposes that God has in the background that we are not privy to, such that even if somebody prayed with as much faith as humanly possible and prayed in whatever way is right with the exact, you know, whatever mechanism you think of, and I won't try to specify what mechanism is best, uh, but, but the prayers are, are, are maximally good from a human perspective. Their faith is maximally good. It still might be the case that what they're praying for might not come about for a host of reasons, mm -hmm. including the possibility that it's not really best, all things considered, or maybe God has committed himself to a course of action that if he would take this course of action, he'd be going against his promises, going against his word, which would be impossible given God's nature. And there's a number of other factors that are possible there. But I think we need to at least recognize that that these these factors are playing some role, but they can't be taken to 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 play the whole role. I mean, suppose maybe kind of as an example, you have you have the juxtaposition, juxtaposition between, say, John the Baptist in prison and later Peter in prison, where uh, even though, according to, to Christian tradition, Peter eventually dies a martyr's death uh, as well, at least initially, you know, he's, he's, he's freed from prison, whereas John right. the Baptist is in prison. And, you know, he, Jesus says there's no prophet greater than him. And he, he sends messengers to Jesus. You know, are you the one? Uh, almost as if he's, 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 he has questions that are arising because he's faithfully served and there he is languishing in prison. And in the end, he ends up being beheaded. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be uh, something that, that he has done. Jesus calls mm -hmm. him a, a man as great as any other that, that leaves him in that situation. There seems to be much more going on in God's providence that we cannot see. So I would always want to avoid any kind of hint or mistake as if prayer operates in some kind of magical way. But I do think there's a lot of biblical material that suggests prayer can make a difference to God. And mm -hmm. it seems like one story that would make sense of this is that prayer might provide God the moral or the legal grounds to do what he already wanted to do within providential history. And particularly, I think of it in, in this larger context of a cosmic conflict, where mm -hmm. there's actually some, some role, some jurisdiction that these demonic agents are playing, and they have some limits within, their, within which they're allowed to operate within this temporary period of time. Uh, but their, their jurisdiction or the limits of their action is effect, can be affected at least by prayer and by people's relationship to God. Hmm. So you said in the New Testament, I wonder if this pushes back this kind of participatory view 
Um, I, I think of the Nahushtan and Numbers with the snake where he sends, you know, forget yeah. about the, the fact that he sent the serpents, but but just such a low bar of participation. Like all you have to do is look upon the staff and you, and you think like, okay, well, who wouldn't look upon the staff, right? Like who didn't, who didn't get saved in that day from an impending death? Um, and so there's that sense of like, help my unbelief, or like if you, if you put it in that faith or my belief unbelief, um, it seems that God is always providing some avenue uh, for just yes. the smallest amount of participation. Um, I think the the other side is, you know, we can think of God as, well, if this were a Gnostic world and really God just cared about us having the right beliefs and that the, our beliefs got us into heaven in some really simplistic way, you have to ask this question, well, why doesn't Jesus just go around zapping everybody's brains and make them believe these things, right? Um, right, 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 right. Uh, and instead, he provide, provides these plausible grounds for people to enter, although we presume from uh, all of testimony of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is involved there somewhere as well. Um so it seems to me, and you mentioned this before we started recording, that there there is this dynamic relationship between God and his people and probably some other people because we always get glimpses of people outside of his, you know, and even Jesus saying, I have other flocks, right, that other sheep that I haven't yet uh, pulled in, um, that he always has something going on with his people, but this dynamic relationship that it's not so... I went to a Presbyterian seminary where we had these guys we called TR, totally reformed, which they were basically what you and I would call occasionalist. They oh, believed, yeah, yeah. you know, God made every single, you know, so they would say, you know, I had to tell, I remember hearing this one guy say one time, oh my goodness, I shouldn't laugh about it, but it's so horrible. He's like, yeah, this woman was talking about when her child was killed by cancer. And he goes, I had, is everything within me not to turn to her and say, woman, your child wasn't killed by cancer. God killed your child, mm, you know, and, mm, and he meant mm. it in like a high providence sovereignty yes. of God. Only God can do this thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the one extreme. And the other extreme is, is we can't do anything and prayer is really just for our own self. It's a self-help program or to make us feel yes. better. Uh, and you're suggesting this middle way, which I think deals well with the tensions of scripture. One of the things that's come up again and again here then is, Prayers answered, and I think that's how we think of prayer as prayers answered, and um, which fits with the word prayer. I mean, pray, pray in English is not a religious word; it's just the best word when they translated the scripture into English that it translated the word best. It's a petition. Yeah. Here's the problem I think that you and I would have at our ripe old ages. I think we're both in our forties, right? Yeah. Is uh, we're we're now at the point in life where we can look back and realize. Oh, I now see when I was 27, 28, 32, 35, 45, you know, last year, I now see how God actually did answer that prayer in a way, in a way completely unimaginable. Um, so I guess there's this epistemic problem, what we know and when. Uh, does this mean that all prayer is shot through or should be shot through with hope and frustration? Or what's the role of hope and what's the role of like, Holding out, I think of, you know, the Muslim greeting, inshallah, you know, like whatever you say, it's always, well, if that's God's will, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, what's what's yeah. the right mixture here, do you think, given what you've seen in scripture? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I, I think that's an excellent way to put it. And I think, I, I think the best place to go is just Gethsemane. I mean, I think, I think we can learn so much from the way that the son 
prays to the Father in Gethsemane. And, and many people, when they think of the prayer, prayer in Gethsemane, obviously it's represented differently in different synoptics. But they often think of the statement where he says, not my will, but yours be done. And I think that's a crucial part, right? Submitting ourselves to recognizing that God wants, uh, God knows what is best and he wants what is best. And he has many factors in mind that we can't even fathom and trusting that God has our best interest in mind so that I might be wanting something. I might have my heart set on something, but for whatever reasons in God's infinite wisdom, that's not really best. And so I really should be praying for God's will to be done not my will to be done. But that's not the only thing that Jesus prays there. Before he prays, not my will, but your will be done. He, he makes this statement that, again, is rather striking initially. He says, Lord, if it is possible, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. And if you read that, you're just like, what? What do you mean if it's possible, right? Because Jesus himself is the one who's like, well, all things are possible to him who believes. Right. So what do you mean if it is possible? And it can't be a matter of, God having enough power. God is all powerful. It's not if you have enough power to do this or if there's any way. Uh, I mean, Jesus could have taken himself down from the cross and, and saved himself or he could have called, you know, thousands of thousands of angels to, to deliver him. Uh, but it seems it seems to me that he's saying if it's possible, given what we are trying to accomplish here, right? Given what we have committed ourselves, if you think of it in terms of a covenant of redemption or just the plan of salvation, if it's possible for me to avoid this, and still bring about this outcome of providing salvation for anyone who believes in me, right? If it's possible in, in this broader sense that philosophers often use this term composable, mm-hmm. right? If it's possible along with, with, this, with this other agenda. So if it's possible, given your good aims and given all the other factors, let this cup pass for me. And I think maybe when we, when we offer petitionary prayer, we should think that way and pray that way, at least individually, right? You know, if it's possible... For this outcome, given all the other good aims you have in mind and everything you know that I don't know, then let this happen. But not my will, yours be done. And I think that's a hopeful way to pray, a recognition that our prayer uh, might make a difference. Again, not because we are in any way uh, causing God to want to bless us more or informing him of something, but maybe giving him permission to act in a way that might not have been available to him morally, uh, given his commitments prior to that. If that makes any sense at all, and I do think it makes sense in a, in a broader uh, cosmic confidence understanding, then praying this way recognizes both that our prayer might provide God the legal or moral grounds to do what he already wants to do. And yet there are so many other factors that we don't even know if what we're praying for is the right thing. Mm-hmm. And even if we were praying for the right thing, there are so many other factors that at the end of the day, in hopefulness and trusting in God, I think we should end with not my will, but your will be done. So you've used this phrase several times, uh, giving God permission or giving him the moral and legal uh, framework for doing what he wanted to do anyways. Could you give an example of what that might look like? Yeah. So in my, in my other work, without tr- getting too much in the weeds, I, I, see, I see instances in scripture that suggest to me that there are some parameters within this conflict between the forces of darkness, uh, these demonic celestial agents, and the kingdom of God, including angels, but especially Jesus when he's, when he's on earth uh, in the New Testament. And that there are some parameters that both parties are operating within. God is doing it morally. Nothing could cause him to operate with these parameters, but he has is, he is agreed in some sense to operate within these restrictions temporarily. And these pop up all over the place. And the, the enemies of God, you know, they have to operate within those restrictions. That That's as much leash that they have, so to speak. And it and, seems and, like... Sorry, that just to clarify, that move right, sir, the enemies of God, they have to operate. God does it out of his nature because that could flip easily into kind of like a Zoroastrian... Good, good versus evil, where they almost seem like they're equals, and you don't know who's going to win. Frank Peretti, like, uh, right, yeah, right, yeah. But we're not, yeah, we're no. not arguing that. 
No, no, it completely rejects any kind of cosmological dualism that you were just describing. There's okay. the, the the creatures that are opposed to God's kingdom are their creatures. They have a beginning. They will have an end. But there's this time within the times that they're allowed to operate within some specified limits. And this idea of specified limits just just pops up even in that story of Mark nine. This kind can only come out by prayer. Mm-hmm. What do you mean they can only come out by prayer? There seems to be some rules or parameters right, in the background. Right. You have another time when Jesus is 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 uh, comes upon the demon possessed man. And the demons shout out to him, we know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the time? What do you mean before the time? What time? They know that there's some time when, yeah. when, their, when their ability to wreak havoc, so to speak, is going to be at an end. And they're like, are you going to actually destroy us now? Because it's not time yet for that. And mm-hmm. even in the book of Revelation, it says the devil knows that his time is short. And there's many, many other examples. But no, the farthest thing from cosmic dualism, in fact, th- this idea is what I think can actually make sense of the idea that there's a conflict between an all-powerful God and mere creatures. It cannot be a conflict of sheer power. No one could ever stand against the all-powerful God of the Bible as a matter of sheer power, which means the conflict must be a conflict of a different kind. And I think mm-hmm. it's a conflict over God's character, and you can't answer allegations against your character by sheer power or sheer force. So one of the things God is doing in the plan of redemption is actually manifesting his character. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, for the demonstration of his righteous and then righteousness. And then in Romans 5, it's the demonstration of his love. And mm. Jesus himself says uh, that he came to testify to the truth when he's before Pilate. And the New Testament elsewhere says he came among, uh, this isn't the only reason I wouldn't, wouldn't reduce it to this, but he came to destroy the works of the devil and destroy him who has the power of death, which is the devil. So all of that suggests that there are some temporary and limited parameters within which the enemy is allowed to work. And it seems to me that within those parameters, uh, the way the rules are set up, that God has the right, if his people call on him in some circumstances, God has more of a moral or legal right to do more than he otherwise might have the right to do. There's a lot more to that, but I think this might even be in the background in the Old Testament covenants as well. Right. And you say God has the right. And so I can hear some people saying, you know, they may have even sung a worship song that says something along the lines of God can do whatever he wants. Yes. And, And those of us who read the Old and New Testament, we say, well, no, as soon as God is making covenants with people, he's restricting exactly. what he's going to say. So when you say given the right, you mean according to what he's agreed to do, according to his covenants and any implications that flow from those covenants. Yes, that's exactly what I mean, right? The God okay. of the Bible is nothing if not a God who makes promises and keeps his promises, right? He's a covenantal yeah. God in that sense. So if he makes a promise, his future action is limited to within the bounds of that promise. So if the conflict itself is set up in, in, within this kind of idea where God has committed himself to a particular kind of action, for a particular period, then even God is morally bound to that kind of action. But just mm. like any kind of contract, you could have within that contract like a trigger clause, right? That if this happens, then this other avenue is opened up. And it seems to me like prayer is one of the factors that might act as mm. a trigger clause in some circumstances. Again, not reduced to that, and it's not the only factor ever, but th- that's what it seems to me would make sense. Correct. Yeah, and it, it makes a lot of, I mean, that, that pulls a lot of things together and puts them in a coherent glob uh, in the sense that uh, even ritual, you know, if you think of, we're, we're thinking of prayer kind of as a, a type of relational mechanism or a relational device. But if you think it'd be even from the ritual side, rituals always do more than one thing. They're never, they're never just doing one thing, right? They, yes, exactly. they symbolize, they transform the person participating. They seem to affect the way God relates to us. And so, uh, prayer as, as a ritual and a relational device is, is doing lots of things at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And yes. And I, and I, and by saying that, I think that prayer does potentially influence what God actually does in the end. 
that's not to negate the fact that prayer also impacts and should impact us, right? It, it should have the, the relational product of drawing us closer to God. It should also, if we're, if we're offering petitioning prayers for others, it should sensitize us even more clearly to the plight of those around us. And we mm. shouldn't just pray for God to do something, but we should do whatever we can do within our sphere of influence right. to be the hands and feet of God, so to speak. And so we offer the petition because we think God can, can do more than we can do, but that doesn't give us license to not do what we can do. And so prayer should also impact us. It's not a one-way street, and there's, there's more, than, more than one factor and many other things going on there. Yeah, I hope people did not miss, you said it kind of quickly, and it comes from some of your other work, but this idea that the conflict is about God's character and that the only way his character can be revealed is over time and circumstance, which again, when Jesus says, when he talks about the truth to Pilate, I take that to be a Hebraic notion of truth that can only be found out over time and circumstance. So even yeah, yeah, I think that's right. God with withholding judgment for this time is part of him tr- proving to be true to his people and to creation. Um, as much as there does have to be a time when he doesn't hold back his judgment anymore and it has to come and new heavens, new earth, and all the goods uh, that come with it. Well, Dr. John Peckham, thank you so much for your wisdom on a very thorny, naughty issue for so many people. Uh, you just brought so much clarity here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to s- discuss this with you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.